1: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum, you could be forgiven for thinking up until a few weeks ago that child labor, especially in dangerous industries, was a thing of the past, something America put behind it around the turn of the last century. But as corporate lobbyists and Republican lawmakers roll back legal protections in state after state, it's becoming clear the past is present right here even in California where child labor rules may be stronger on paper but don't deter kids especially in agricultural communities from taking on arduous jobs. We'll learn more after this news. This is Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim blame demographics blame the lack of comprehensive immigration reform for more than 30 years whatever the case there's just not enough working age adults to do all the work that needs to be done in America today especially the dangerous labor the tedious labor the labor that happens out in the hot sun day after day for a variety of reasons a variety of employers don't seem willing to pay high enough wages and benefits to attract enough grown-ups so they've turned to children, quite often Latino and Asian children in California. And since some of these children or their parents are undocumented, they tend to need the money. The word for this kind of working relationship is exploitation, and it's what we're going to be talking about this hour, first with Jacob Bogage, business reporter at The Washington Post. Jacob, what a privilege to talk to you today.
2: It's such a pleasure to be with you.
1: I'd love you to talk about your reporting recently, which has uncovered how a Florida-based conservative think tank has been convincing Republican lawmakers across the country to allow children as young as 14 to work longer hours in more dangerous conditions. We aren't talking about a grassroots movement here, are we? No,
2: we're not. We're, we're talking about what what folks affectionately call an astroturf movement, which is a uh, designed to make it look grassroots. And I don't say that in a, um, derisive way because it's incredibly effective. The group I wrote about is called the Foundation for Government Accountability. It is a conservative think tank and lobbying operation based out of Florida. Uh, over the past few years, they've put 115 lobbyists in 22 states. They have been lobbying Congress when it comes to the debt ceiling about, uh, rolling back anti-poverty aid. Um, they're very influential. They're very good at what they do. And part of their ethos is expanding the workforce because they they see work as um a, a panacea to a lot of societal ills and a lot of economic ills. Um, and in so doing that means involving children in the workforce in a in a larger way.
1: Uh, You know, you've mentioned in previous interviews, some people call this the IKEA model of regulatory change.
2: Yeah, which is a term that I absolutely love um, because, you know, when you think about going to IKEA, right, you go in the showroom and you see I'm sitting next to an IKEA bookcase right here. Um, You see this this bookcase and you go, oh, that's nice. And you go to the warehouse and you pull it out. And you get home and it has the cute little instruction manual that says, here's how to put your bookcase together with this little Allen wrench that we give you. And what FGA does is really the same thing. Uh, They they float policy proposals uh, to state legislators. And then they say, and if you like that, here's how to roll back child labor law in your state With this little handy toolkit, we can provide you the research, we can provide you the policy support, we can provide you the the lobbying support. Um, This is how you do it. I I think a really good example of that is in Missouri, where they have a bill rolling back some child labor protections. And FGA literally wrote the legislation, found a uh, legislator, a senior legislator who was interested in it handed them the bill, then testified in support of the bill in front of the committee. Um, It's incredibly effective.
1: You know, riddle me this. Don't federal child labor protections trump state laws?
2: They do. And I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, Federal child labor protections were set in 1938 for the most part, through a bill called the Fair Labor Standards Act that talks about how many hours a child can work at what age, um, and what dangerous environments they're not allowed to work in. Um but that law's really enforced in a hit-or-miss kind of way. And so a lot of the regulation has come down to the states to impose. And that's important, too, because states have specialized economies with certain industries that are more prevalent than others. So it, I would say it is a feature, not a bug, of some of these state legislations, that they they are in conflict with the federal government. And, and I'll talk about two states real quickly, which is you know the two states we've seen pass and sign these bills into law, Arkansas and Iowa, the governors of those states, Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Sarah Huckabee Sanders in Arkansas, have made it a part of their policy portfolio to say our state will stand in conflict to the liberals in Washington. And this is another example of creating that atmosphere of conflict.
1: I worked when I was a teenager. I'm sure many of our listeners have teenagers who are working now on the weekends, over the summer. But we're talking about something else, aren't we?
2: Yeah, we're talking about something else. And I'm just one of the, you know, the the teenagers who worked, you know, over the summer or after school, bussing tables or scooping ice cream or, you know, all kinds of odd uh, jobs. We're not really talking about that. What we're talking about in, you know, is... Construction work is agricultural work is um sometimes serving alcohol as opposed to just waiting tables or busing tables um you know and we're talking about not necessarily i don't want to paint with too broad a brush but we're talking about not necessarily kids from a middle class or upper middle class upbringing who can kind of be more choosy about the kind of work they do. We're talking about kids who come from already economically vulnerable situations, who have responsibilities in their households to help pay the bills, uh, and for whom this money is crucial. Uh and that's why these are when we talk about these bills that are that are being rolled back, you know, these laws that are being rolled back, they're they're talked about like um well, this is common sense and kids need to, you know, we should should get government out of the way here. In in many cases, government is the only thing standing in the way between a vulnerable child and an exploitative workplace.
1: And we're talking as well about, you know, major brands and the companies they subcontract with and their franchisees.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I I think the the best example we can talk about is uh, meatpacking plants um in eight states including iowa and nebraska and arkansas um and this is a contractor uh called packer sanitation services that employed you know more than 100 children some as young as 13 uh, to use caustic cleaning chemicals on head splitters and band saws on slaughterhouse floors. Um, And they contracted with companies like JBS, which is a humongous meat producer and Tyson, uh, you know, the famous chicken producer. Uh, Even if a company itself is not necessarily using child labor. Maybe their subcontractor will. And another example of that is Hyundai uh, and Kia in Alabama. One of their part suppliers was also using child labor as recently as 2022.
1: You know, many of us learned in school about photographers like Jacob Rees and Lewis Hine, who raised public awareness about the horrific conditions children were living and working in during the early early 20th century. I'm visualizing some of those photos, and I I, I bet uh, you probably are as well. It took a few decades, but we got to the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, as you mentioned earlier. But now what you're describing to me sounds like a wholesale rollback happening in the plain light of day.
2: It is. It is. It is. I don't know how to put it better than the way you just did. I, I think it is a major rollback. Um, we're seeing this on a state-by-state state level. That's not to say we couldn't see it on a national level, because one of FGA's core tenets is if we can create policy changes state-by-state, state, that gives us openings on a national level. When I think about those photographs Jacob Reese, lewis hine um you know, they are in black and white, but when you look at them, um it's not difficult to see that the major constituencies being pictured are white. Uh that is not the case these days. Um and and this is an issue in which race plays a critical part.
1: And, and has for centuries, uh, even here in, in California, or perhaps especially here in California. I'm thinking of, you know, so, so many uh, Mexicans in particular, Chinese in particular, over the last couple hundred years. Um, but it's also worth saying that, you know, you, you don't need to be um, a, a tenuously present adults. Uh, to be vulnerable to this kind of exploitation. I mean, children, children are less likely to ask for more pay, for better working conditions, uh, for for unions.
2: Yeah, you're right on. And I appreciate you bringing up the history in California. That's, that's so important, um, especially in, in agricultural work, where there are seldom, there are very few if any, child labor protections in agricultural work, um, including and especially on family farms, where there are basically zero regulations uh, and the definition of a family farm can be rather broad. Uh, I think another thing that's important to remember is that children have always been part of the workforce. Um, and, And so this idea of a a rollback in plain sight which i don't think is inaccurate um is not something that's entirely new or it's we're not necessarily introducing entirely new concepts to the american workforce the american workforce and indeed the global workforce has relied on children since you know the beginning of time um and it it is a government's responsibility and uh voters responsibilities to decide you know, what is what is appropriate? What jobs are appropriate? What roles are appropriate? How many hours are appropriate for for kids to be working?
1: I, I suppose it bears mentioning as well that, you know, uh, there has been an underground labor market in America and California for generations.
2: Absolutely, there has. And, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show, immigration. Is such an important part of this. And uh, you know, not from the Washington Post, but but a former Washington Post colleague now at the New York Times, Hannah Dreyer, has done some really incredible reporting on this. Uh, and I know uh our guests for the rest of the show have uh real expertise in this as well. I'm excited to hear from
1: them. Well, Jacob Bogage, what a pleasure talking with you. Uh Jacob Bogage is a business reporter at the Washington Post. Check out his his recent reportage about the national surge of children working jobs in violation of protective regulations and the conditions that push minors to seek work out. Thank you for listening. We want you to join this conversation as well, especially if you've worked as a minor. For what reasons? In what locations? Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Whatever you do, stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Miro, in for Kim, and we are talking about the national surge of children working jobs in violation of protective regulations across the country and also here in California. We'd like you to join the conversation as well. Did you work as a minor in the past? Are you a minor working now? You can give us a ring at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. We're also monitoring our accounts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The handle is at kqed forum easy enough we have been talking this hour uh, so far with jacob bogage uh, bogage rather business reporter at the washington post uh, and uh, we also have on the line elizabeth strader director of strategic campaigns for the united farm workers elizabeth thank you for joining us
4: yeah thanks for having me
1: so I, I guess, I, you know, I want to sort of take up something we began to talk about uh, at the end of the first uh, segment. Uh, Jacob, b- before you go, talk about the fact that, you know, uh, what's happening now uh, is happening because there's already an infrastructure in place across the country for underground labor.
2: Yeah, I, I, let's look at the macro environment here. Um, we are in an inflationary environment. And so costs are higher for consumers and costs are higher for businesses. And businesses look across uh, their balance sheets and say, how do we cut costs? And one way to do that is by uh, decreasing labor costs. And so instead of, you know, to attract talent, because we also lack sufficient workers uh, right now, instead of increasing salaries or benefits to attract uh, older, of age workers uh you look to expand the workforce and the infrastructure that's in place right now to do this has a lot to do with immigration um and has a lot to do with children coming to this country uh either voluntarily or through labor trafficking specifically for economic opportunity um and you know that's a double-edged sword it's it is a wonderful thing that um Folks can can come to the United States to improve their economic standing. I mean, that's how my family got to this country. That's how millions of Americans got to this country. Um, But if it's happening under coercive circumstances, obviously not a great thing. Um, And and that has the opportunity to that threatens to put a lot of kids um, at risk.
1: Elizabeth Strader, many people don't realize there's also a multi-generational carve-out in labor law across the country for agricultural work. That's true in California as well. That's right.
4: So some of our most basic uh, labor laws in the country, which set out the, the really minimal basic um, standards, minimum wage, overtime pay, things like that, um, the Fair Labor Standards Act, and then the National Labor, labor Relations Act. Um, these are bills that were passed in the 1930s, um, and at that time, uh, those bills would not have been passed um, uh, if they had included work that basically had been traditionally associated with, with slavery. And so, uh, the agricultural workforce um, in in the you know in the South, particularly at that time, was predominantly black, and you know those bills simply wouldn't have passed for anyone. Um, if they had not at that time excluded uh, agricultural work, domestic work as well, um, those exclusions have continued to this day. So, in in a very real way, you know, the New Deal left behind farm workers, and you know, the the farm worker labor laws, um, particularly around children, are are very much sort of stuck in this in in the Jim Crow era with with very real shadow of slavery over the fields and orchards and vineyards that are continuing to feed this country.
1: The New Deal left behind farm workers. What what are the child labor laws in California like, especially as regards farm work?
4: So in in California, there are some, you know, the the basic uh, the really basic federal protections um, have very few guidelines once a child is 12 years of age. And in California, there are uh, you know, some additional uh, protections there. For example, they have determined that um, you know, a, a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old cannot work uh, on a school day. Uh, they can work uh, on a weekend for up to eight hours. They can work uh, you know, much longer hours during the summer. A 14- and a 15-year-old, uh, a 16- and a 17-year-old, they can work a certain number of hours per day. It, it, it changes as they age up. Um, after school uh, and during the school year. And then, of, of course, you know, they're, once they are, have left school, then uh, you know, over, if they're not required to be in school, they're over the age of 16, um, then for the most part, those, hour, those wage and hour protections fall away.
1: Well, the phone lines are lighting up, and I do mean from all over the state. Why don't we start with Marshall in Richmond? Hi, Marshall. Hi. Whoops, there you are. Hi.
6: There
7: you are. Yeah, hi. Hi. So I worked worked outside the home uh, starting around uh, fifth grade, always afternoons or um, uh, weekends, nothing very difficult. But in high school, I went to boarding school and we were required to work. But because my family didn't have a lot of money, I had to help pay for school. So I worked four hours a day in a factory. Counting out nuts, bolts, and screws for uh, the hardware to put together redwood furniture.
1: Wow. And that was my morning.
7: It was pretty brutal because I had then just the lunch hour to get to get washed and changed and go to my classes for the afternoon. It was exhausting and it was brutal, but it was all legal. I got a, a little tiny bit of my pay to, for personal expenses, and it helped my family. But I can't even imagine how hard it would be for these kids who aren't in, a, in like, I was in a system where they were regulating it and everything was you know, above board. I can't even imagine how hard it is for these kids who are doing it all day, who don't have the protection, don't speak English.
1: Yeah, uh, Marshall. Thank you so much for sharing your story, uh, Elizabeth. I mean, uh, that's kind of what we're talking about now. Uh, you know, these are children whose families are in desperate need financially, uh, and you know, in in many cases, uh, the work they're doing may be uh, to the benefit of those families, but but uh, are you know leave them very sleepy and uh, under engaged with their own education, as it were.
4: That's right. Um, you know, children are children working um, in in the way that they do, especially in the agricultural industry. And I think you see a lot of the same in, uh, you know, in the fast food industry. Th- that's really the the children working is a, is a problem in itself, but it's also a symptom of a problem. This is, you know, there's families that are relying on the income of these very young kids. It's it's a, it's a sign of their, you know, it's just real deep, uh, you know, economic desperation it's a it's a child poverty issue um in this country it's also a lack of a child care issue there's a you know a, a, a nuanced conversation to be had um particularly with the very young kids that you know for example a farm worker family is just facing some really impossible choices if they don't have access to after-school programming um in the summer to you know for access to childcare, and You know, even it even intersects like with uh, with environmental justice as the climate crisis, you know, is deepening some of the things that you see is, um, for example, in the cherry harvest. If the temperatures are very high, the fruit can't safely be handled. And so they they switch, and, and it can be quite abrupt, they'll switch to nocturnal harvests. So now you have a farmworker family who's already in a state of economic desperation. They're you know facing housing instability. They're facing food insecurity. And now they have to report to work at 2 o'clock in the morning. They may only have one phone in their household, for example. So if the parents go to work, do they leave their children home alone at night? Or do they bring them to work with them? The kids sleep in the car till the sun rises and then once it's light out, the kids help mom and dad. You know, if they leave their kids home alone, do they leave the phone with the kids? So that they could call nine one one, or do they bring the phone with them so that the kids can go next door and call them if they have a problem? Like these are really truly impossible choices beyond the economic desperation. And you know, having an understanding of why our child labor laws are so insufficient to protect the the physical health of children and and their and, you know their social and emotional development as well. Like it, it, you have to take into consideration these 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 other factors: the fact that we don't have a care economy, that we don't have, you know the the social supports that that kids need to to thrive
1: let's go to the phones again and tom in sonoma hi tom
8: hi uh they got the name wrong it's paul actually oh paul okay uh, yeah not a problem real quickly first time caller so i agree with what your last uh speaker said uh we need the, the social care uh I worked under the table. My parents are from Mexico. Um, uh, when I was a kid, I worked under the table, like as a 14 year old for a dollar an hour when the rate was one sixty-five. Uh, I know what it's like to struggle for money and have a poor environment, but at the same time, uh, there has to be a balance with all of this. I have an agricultural business. I hire, uh, I've hired young kids to do, help me do sales, uh, at the nursery. And I have, and, uh, It's worked out really well. It's contributed to their college. I've matched their college uh, uh, savings. And it's worked because I believe the laws that are here work well for me. Obviously, I live in a a bit of a bubble environment, but uh, I don't know where is the compromise in all of this because these kids are going to work, and if they don't get to work legitimately, they're going to go work under the table. You're not going to be able to stop that.
1: Yeah, yeah. What do you say to that, uh, Jacob? Uh, you know, there's sort of, it seems like there are sort of two streams of discussion here, you know, the, um, the, the kind of work that we might hope that children have um, in this country and, and the kind of work we're not so happy about. It, it seems not so much that, that the distress is over children working, but the nature of that work, the, the degree of suffering they experience.
2: I think you're right on and uh, i'm so glad paul our caller um raises the the concept that that it is not nece- it is not inherently a bad thing for children to work and there is a lot of research about that um when we do start seeing Downsides to children working—it's around the environments of the amount of hours they work. Um, we have another caller talk about you know working four hours a week, four, five, six days—you know, five, six, seven days a week—that is definitely on the on the upward bound. Um, look, you know, talking with with advocates around this issue, I, you know, I, I think that is something i hear pretty frequently that, that we don't want to keep children out of the workforce we want to make sure that the jobs that they take are truly advantageous that that don't um you know if they're suffering in school that there's a real possibility that puts a cap on their future economic prospects because they need good grades they need to be able to go get a certification or you know go to college or or get you know a secondary school or something of that nature um The other side of this is what Elizabeth mentioned in response to our last caller, which is the social supports and child care supports um, around what we do for for working families. Um, If parents are making a living wage, then they're less likely to need to send their kids to work. And if they do send their kids to work, they can be more choosy in the jobs their kids take. So there are there are two sides to this, which is what kind of jobs and how long are we comfortable with children working in those environments? And then what supports will government and society offer working families?
1: There's also a, another wrinkle, uh, if you will, in the story today, which is that we've seen uh, with this surge of unaccompanied minors, uh, you know, many of them working in 50 states, oftentimes uh, in a co- compulsory situation, as detailed by the New York Times. And California's own Javier Becerra, secretary atop health and human services in Washington, D.C., plays a role.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the it, it, I, I believe this was, was uh, early April when I published the story. But there was, you know, HHS, excuse me, health and human services um and, and uh, other government officials testifying in front of Congress, and, and close to 15% of the undocumented minors who arrive in the United States without their parents are released from federal custody to distant relatives or non-relative sponsors. The vast majority of those people are wonderful sponsors doing a Wonderful thing, welcoming a vulnerable child into their homes. But we're talking about a lot of kids and we're talking about a lot of sponsors. And not all of them have the best intentions in mind. And that's why we see these issues. You know, what I wrote about was was about state issues and state laws. But this is a a national and international story as well.
1: Uh, Beautifully put. Let's take another call now. Rainey in Petaluma. Hi, Rainey. Oh, good morning. Thank you for taking
9: my call. I just wanted to comment that um, I started working when I was 13, first catering and then waitressing. And um, I was influenced a lot by the older people who worked there who were young adults who chose not to go to school, and a lot of them dropped out of high school and just started working right away. And um, it really normalized the idea that, that your life could just sort of be fine with waiting tables for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, you know, when you're 13, you think you know everything. You're flattered that 20-year-olds are telling you this is the way to go. And um, back in the day, you, you could at least get a roof over your head, waiting tables. Um, I lived on Canal Street in San Rafael rent was $400 a month for a two-bedroom, but that's impossible now. And so my greatest concern for the young workforce is that they're, they're culturally surrounded by what becomes normal, and then their own evolution becomes further and further away for their true potential. I'm very happy to say I did finally make the shift. There's nothing wrong with waiting tables for a living, but it's, I think, really dangerous
1: to introduce kids to working full-time when they're 13 years old. Thank you for sharing those thoughts, Rainey. Uh, Elizabeth, where are the unions when it comes to child labor? How are they working to advocate for children, or or is the feeling, you know, uh, there's bigger fish to fry?
4: No, I I think it's, the the unions are, uh, you know, the labor movement and in, in in the in the whole country but particularly in California is actually doing a lot of homework right now to ramp up as we see escalations and child labor violations you'll see um, and I, I think it's important for uh, for kids to know and, and basically for for all of the workforce to know that if you have a job whether you're a child or an adult you are uh you know you you do have those labor rights you can be a member of your union you can organize your workplace uh and you and you do have these uh you know th- these protections it's a protected right um regardless of age and you know i i remember a few years ago i was up at um I was up at the 40 acres the UFW uh, you know the original uh, strike camps and things were up there and I was with uh, Paul Chavez the who's the son of Cesar Chavez and he talked about the time that you know he would he came he came to a, meet, a union meeting with his dad and he's walking up and he sees uh, the he says oh, I see I saw a bunch of kids my age and I was so excited and I went to run up and play with these kids and and my dad stopped me and he says no Polly there um they're here to vote in their union election. And he said, I was about six and they were, they were garlic workers and they were there to vote in their union election, you know, at six years old. So, you know, Unions are often a place that we come to, to uh, whether we're seeking to organize into a union, uh, but workers also reach out to unions to help them take some, you know, protected direct action, whether it's walking out on a strike, whether it's filing, uh, you know, wage, wage and hour claims. And, and, and the labor movement is gearing up as we see this escalation of children participating in the workforce.
1: That's Elizabeth Strader, director of Strategic Campaigns for United Farm Workers. We're also talking with Jim. Jacob Bogey, business reporter at The Washington Post. Jacob, going to let you go. Thank you so much for being with us today as we talk about children, working jobs, and violations of protective regulations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Miro. Stay with us.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro, in for Kim. And this hour, we are talking about child labor and really child exploitation uh, with a panel of experts that includes Elizabeth Strader, Director of Strategic Campaigns for United Farm Workers, and also Hernan Hernandez, Executive Director of the California Farmworker Foundation. Hernan, thank you so much for being here.
3: Yes, thank you, Rachel, for having me on the show today.
1: Well, boy, the comments and calls are coming in fast and furious. Uh, Paul writes, perhaps the problem here and in many other aspects is the shielding of corporate officers from criminal liability. Right now, corporations treat fines for violations of the law as a cost of doing business, and I'm sure that factors into their prices. If CEOs knew they'd go to jail for at least a year if their company has been found to have violated a criminal statute, I bet there'd be a lot less of the kind of thing we're discussing today. Ar- Anand, I, I know that sort of brings you into the conversation on a tough topic, but what is the situation, you know, how are corporations held accountable, especially here in California?
3: You know, when I think about corporations in California, I always think in ag there's a the missing sector, right? And the missing sector is really the retailer. And when you look down at who makes up the retailer, who makes up the prices, it's the consumer. And the consumer dictates how much they want to pay for a product and how much they're willing to sacrifice on their wallet. So when you look at accountability, I think we got to look at every single sector that interacts with the food systems. And a big part of it being the corporations, being that they do not want to pay the prices in the market in order to justify the wages. But it's also the consumer at the end of the day that dictates that price. But, yeah, but but is
1: it we're seeing all of this inflation lately? That and a lot of it doesn't have to do with the price of oil, doesn't have to do with with labor costs. It's simply the companies taking profits because they can. I mean, I'm yes. getting this from Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal.
3: Well, the way we the way I see it is, and this is not our, our expertise, right? We deal with farm workers. This is, I think, you got to ask the corporation in regards to their profits or whatever they do. But I do think that the food system as a whole. Uh, we have to all take accountability on what, how much we put a, um, on a price for the items that we're buying on a day-to-day basis. If we want everything cheaper in America and bigger, then we know that there's going to be side effects and we know that our most vulnerable population is going to suffer from that, which in this case is farm workers. Why
1: don't we take another phone call now? Uh, Bob in San Francisco. Hi, Bob.
3: Hello, can you
10: hear me? We sure can. Hi, there we go. I think the, the ding was late. I'm here now. Um, yeah, my comment is to respond to something the guest said about, um, how, you know, it's important for kids to maintain access to the workforce, but we want to make sure that their work doesn't, you know, harm their academic abilities. And I think it's really, really important to then define a clear, bright line between those two things. And in my mind, anytime a kid has to work because their family doesn't have enough Money, um, you know, to get them what they need, that is always problematic, and a kid should never be in that situation, even if they are gaining so-called job skills. However, if the primary function of the job is to ke- teach that kid something, they should absolutely be paid for their labor, and they should be able to elect to do that job or not to. Um, I think the the really defining thing for me is the idea of necessity.
1: So, so, Ernan, talk about what Bob has just raised there, this question of economic uh, necessity. There, there's what we would like to believe about the world, and then there's the way the world is. But also, you've had a personal experience uh, growing up in the fields of California,
3: yes, um, you know, I grew up. I was your typical central Valley uh, farm worker family, right? Both parents were farm workers, Uh grew up in the in the field, started working at such an early age. And I remember so vividly when I started to work in the fields, we were girdling in table grapes and we were so weak that we couldn't girdle correctly. So my dad was um, literally looking after me and my brother and completing the work. But when you look at why we ended up in the fields, it was a lot of it was necessity. A lot of it was that my parents wanted us to value education. They wanted us to be Uh, self-sustainable. My mom's dream for us was always to work in an environment that had an AC. And my dad's dream was to work in an environment where you only work five days out of the week. So they would um, take us out to the field. We would work uh, during the summers, during the winter breaks, um, at times during the weekends, and even evenings. And this really, for me personally, it taught me a lot. It built my character, and it gave me a work ethic that my father always wanted to instill it in us so that we can pursue our dreams and fulfill our dreams. So it is um, a lot of portions of necessity. If we look at what's happening now, if you look at the housing crisis, our farm workers can't afford the rent. If you look at how many hours they're working per week right now, a lot of them are telling us that they it's just not enough. They can't make enough money to pay rent. They don't they can't make enough money to pay child care. Child care right now, as one of them participants mentioned, it's very difficult for our population. And when we think about childcare, it's uh, thinking about paying $25, $30 per kid, right? So if you have a family of three or four, automatically you're paying a hundred plus dollars. Then that in uh, most of the times the family the mother stays behind doesn't work, which then causes the family to be in more dire need. so there's a lot of things that we we need to be looking at when it comes to farm workers, but when we think about what can be done, it really comes down to economic mobility and it comes to higher wages our Our version for what we're trying to do is we're trying to get individuals out of the field to put them into higher paying jobs in other economies that are up and coming, like manufacturing, like construction. Other industries where we know for a fact a farm worker is going to be able to make more sustainable wages, which will then change their quality of life.
1: Elizabeth, let's talk a little bit about state regulation here in California. You know, certainly we've documented it extensively here at KQED. There are major issues with the enforcement of the laws already on the books in this state because regulatory agencies are chronically underfunded, understaffed, and and the fines are just too darn low.
4: Yeah. So, in terms of enforcement and, and and proactive enforcement, you know, which would be prevention, um, the 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 state uh, is is somewhat limited in in the in the amount that they're able to, to to really impact the the unlawful behavior when it does fall outside of the law. Um, so, when you when you have a, an agency that's underfunded and when you have a business model that uh, is willing to accept the fines rather than the you know the administrative cost of making sure that you're compliant with the law like that that it does it it just creates you know a, a generational problem where you have these you know this cycle of of workers that may not know what their rights are they're working in in social and geographic isolation um they're more likely to be uh, disadvantaged in every way, including uh, immigration status. And and, and so even uh, the workers that do know what their rights are, um, they're going to be very hesitant to reach out to a state or federal agency uh, for enforcement or, or to report violations because of the concerns that they have around the, the documentation status, either of themselves or they live in a mixed status household.
1: Let's take another call now. Nick in Castro Valley. Hi, Nick. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, what's your story? Uh, So, I mean,
10: I I worked with my dad when I was like nine years old as a painter, uh, but I actually worked, uh, I was homeschooled. So I would like ride my bike all over town. I was working for Target when I was like 16 years old. Because I was homeschooled, I was working like 20, 20 plus hours a week.
1: And how did that go for you? Were you treated well? Um, Did you feel it was a, a good deal for you?
10: I mean, I got 30% off. I mean, <laughs> I liked stuff. So, I mean, it was, it was cool for me at the time. Uh, I did my homework. I did my stuff I was supposed to do. And, uh, yeah, I, I just was always pretty much kind of on the road, up with my bike, and, yeah, traveling and working. I worked at a comic book store, too, for free comics, like at a young age. It was like I always found some way to work at a young age to get what I wanted to get because I didn't always have the money. And, and do you, do you have anyway. kids
1: now? Are are you uh, letting them I work? Yeah. Yeah.
10: So I got three kids. Uh, two of them regularly will work with me. I have gear for them, PPE, make sure they can work safely. Uh, you know, they I, I work in pest control, but I teach them the entomology. I teach them the building constructions. Uh, I make it more of a learning experience of a classroom when I take my boys with me. Uh, they want to see the big houses, the big mansions. So I like take them to what I can go see. Typically, we go out to the beach at the end of the day, and just like I write my reports, and then it's good to go. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for for sharing your story, Nick. Uh, Ernan, I it it sounds like a, a big uh, a big difference in terms of whether it's a positive or a negative for the children is is whether uh, you know the the employer or the the supervisor, if you will, is is a parent, a loving parent.
3: Yes, no, definitely. And there's one thing that you know about the fields. A lot of the crews are made up of, a, are made up of family. So when I worked there, I worked with my aunts, I worked with my uncles. Uh, they all taught me uh, different lessons. They all walked with me as a community. And I do have to say this, um, now that you grow up, when you go and in, into the professional world, the fields was the best work environment that I had, because it was a community. We were on the same boat. Everybody talked to each other, everybody helped each other. For me, it was a very positive experience. Um, now, When I look at my children in the future, I would love them to have that connection as well, but not starting at the age that I started, but also once they're able to get a work permit, I would want to bring them out so they can have that connection to the land and they can learn to value the things that our parents instilled in us so that they can continue having that work ethic, being self-sustainable, and really valuing their education.
1: Uh, Jennifer writes about uh, what I imagine would be a very different context where, where the supervisor is not a loving adult. Could your guess shed light on the emotional and mental effects of minors being in a workplace because the dynamics are different for a child worker? Their employers are not their peers. They're adults. So being reprimanded or fired as a child would be way more traumatic than as an adult and have an effect on their development. Uh Elizabeth, do, do you want to comment on that?
4: So certainly. Um when you when you are thinking about the types of uh you know, of labor, there's a huge difference um in in not just in their development and 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 the and their vulnerability to sort of trauma and um exposure to things like that. But thinking about farm workers specifically, more than half of the work-related deaths among children in the United States are, are are farm workers they're working in agriculture so i'm talking about little children that go to work and then that they die they are killed by their work um, and even though the there's only 6 or 7% of the child workers in the united states are employed in agriculture more than half of the deaths that occur at work happen um, uh, you know in 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 farmer so um it's it's a it it's difficult to balance for many people, not just the educational needs of kids, but also the developmental needs. But we, we and we really can't overlook how devastating just a lack of sleep is for children that are developing. Um, it, it, it's not just that they they get poor grades; like they it, they they suffer from you know developmental delays um, as, as they move into adulthoods, But also their little bodies are just small. And thinking about how outrageous it is in this country that a twelve-year-old can legally harvest tobacco, which is a neurotoxin, and it's readily absorbed through the skin. That same twelve-year-old can't purchase the uh, the tobacco until they're twenty-one. But so you know, it really is. It, there's a huge difference between um, you know uh, working at the comic book store or coming to work uh, you know with with your dad at a restaurant, and it's it's a very different experience for um, kids that are, are in the position of of, of such economic desperation that they've been brought into very, very dangerous work sites with their families.
1: Uh, well put. You are listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Miro in Fermina Kim. So Elizabeth, tell us what is happening on the legislative uh, front in Sacramento? We, we happen to be in a make or break week for a lot of proposed state laws.
4: So yeah, no, there's there's quite a bit of uh, of, of policy on on the, ta- on the table in Sacramento. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, one thing that I think advocates like myself are happy about is that we're not facing um, the situation in California where we're going to see even you know even greater weakening in the in the child labor laws, like we have seen in Iowa, like we have seen in Arkansas. So you know, here in California, you know, probably some of the more significant. Um, protections that have been passed uh, would be, you know, for instance, in California, there's overtime protections for farm workers now, which means that after, um, you know, after a 40-hour week, that's that's fully phased in at this point. After a 40-hour week, farm workers um, would have to be um, be paid time and a half, and that really, in a lot of ways, that's a, it's a health and safety protection um, that that. Creates better balance for all. Well, it's actually Ernan, um, uh, Ernan's organization lobbied against the overtime bill and, and worked to. Uh, ah,
3: that's a complete lie. So you can show me the facts. Show me any newspaper article. We did not lobby against it. So don't try to come up with that stuff on us.
4: So it, we're fortunate to be in California as opposed to Arkansas. But um, I think I think advocates, labor advocates across the country, should be watching very closely. Um, you know the organizations that do want to weaken these child. Uh, labor laws and and see an increasing number of children working in, in dangerous and inappropriate work sites.
1: Well, we've got just a few more minutes, so I want to make sure we get to at least one more call. Why don't we go to Arielle in Piedmont? Uh, Arielle, thank you for joining us today.
6: Hi, thanks so much for having me on. I um, really enjoyed the program. I just wanted to offer a slightly different perspective. Um, when I was a kid, I worked retail, um, and I worked retail from age 16 at pet food stores, at clothing stores and whatnot. And I ended up working with a lot of folks who were older than me um, in their 20s, 30s, 40s. And, you know, one of the interesting things was I found them, I wanted to go to med school. I did go to med school. Um, and I found them, you know, really trying to kind of squash me and squash my ambitions, writing me up for random things. I'm a woman of color. Um, and in a weird way, it was just fuel for me. I don't look down at anybody who works in retail. I think it, you know, is, is, a, is a, a really important profession. Um, but I remember thinking to myself, here are these adults talking to me as a kid, trying to, you know, kind of quench my, my dreams. And it just ended up being fuel for me to really go out there and say, I'm going to prove all of these folks wrong. I'm not going to end up in a situation like they are where I'm, you know, not enjoying my work and trying to, you know, thwart the dreams of of younger people. And so it really inspired me to go into mentoring um, and do a lot of other things. But I just that that experience has always stood out. um, And I sometimes wonder what those folks are doing now.
1: Thank you so much for sharing uh, your story as well, there, Ariel. Uh Hernan, let let me throw a, a different kind of Sacramento-focused question at you. What would you like to see happen, uh, uh, either legislatively or or uh, in terms of regulation uh, at the state level here in California?
3: Yes. Um, before I go into, it, I just want to clarify: we did not lobby against forty-hour work week. This is interesting coming from an organization that lost a two-point-one million dollar gotcha. loss in twenty sixteen, gotcha. yeah, or exactly not paying their staff overtime but what we want to see is we want to see individuals that have more economic opportunities and what we're doing is trying to elevate the skill sets of farm workers we want to see higher wages in agriculture i do think that we live in california which is one of the most progressive states so in terms of labor standards like anything we can do better but we're not in the south we're not in texas which is great for our um, farm worker workforce but we do want to see more opportunity and our our version of opportunities, how can we integrate them into other sectors of the economy where they can make higher wages? Because at the end of the day, if individuals are living day to day, if they're too worried about keeping a roof over their head, then I do think that any type of behavior change, whether it's health, or their education, it's not really going to help them out. So we want to see higher wages. We want to see them integrate into different parts of the economy. And if you look in agriculture, just drive, drive down to five, you're seeing a lot of more almonds, a lot of more pistachios. So you're going to see automation. You're going to see more harvesting. And what we're telling um, the legislators is that we would truly have to have a farm worker blueprint that's going to encompass economic development into these communities so that they can make higher wages, which will translate into better quality of life for them.
1: Well, you've raised uh, the question of technology in agriculture and labor, and that's grist for a whole other forum. I want to thank both of our guests, Elizabeth Strader, Director of Strategic Campaigns for the United Farm Workers, and Hernan Hernandez, Executive Director of the California Farm Worker Foundation, as well as earlier, Jacob Bogage, Business Reporter at The Washington Post. It has been such a pleasure talking with you all about child labor and child exploitation. A uh, tough topic to deal with, but uh, we've seen uh, the direction forward pointed out for us today. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in Fermina Kim. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Funds for the
5: production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.